Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to a special two-part podcast series that I did with Matt Galvin and Dan Kahn. Matt is well known as the outgoing Chief Compliance Officer at ABM Bev and is incredibly innovative use of data, not only in compliance, but literally across the company to make the company run more efficiently and more profitably. Dan Kahn is known for his work at the Department of Justice, both as the head of the FCPA unit and the assistant head of the fraud section. We have a fascinating art series on how you should deal with the Department of Justice, both in the investigation phase, during the investigation, and post-resolution. Have you ever thought about the intersection of tax and compliance? Well, I had not until I did a five-part podcast series on Taxman with Tracy Howe on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this part two, Dan Kahn and Matt Galvin take a deep dive into the Lisa Monaco speech and its impact on compliance. Dan, if I could turn to you now, and I want to leave uh, the monitorship discussion for some later remarks about the Lisa Monaco speech, but there are always obligations under a resolution document, ongoing obligations, whether that be a deferred prosecution agreement, non-prosecution agreement, or, or some other for continued reporting to the Department of Justice. And I was wondering if you could say a few words on the DOJ's expectation, once again, in the non-monitor sphere that a company would fulfill its obligations under its whatever resolution document is chosen, and then how that uh, communication would be to the department. Yeah, and, and you're, you're right, Tom, that uh, MPAs, DPAs, guilty pleas all have the same compliance obligations, um, at least certainly out of the, the DOJ criminal division and, and the SEC FCPA cases. Um, and so that's uh, going to, to look... Um, fairly similar to what the requirements are under a monitorship. It's just that um, instead of having a monitor review the compliance program and report on those enhancements, the company is is reporting on them themselves. And so uh, I think where, where previously um, that was an annual thing, um, and, and I think, you know, certainly when I started in the department, um, what that looked like was, you know, every year the company would submit a report, the prosecutor um, would would review it and may or may not have questions about it. Um, I think that's evolved over time as as the the compliance, um, uh, both, I would, I would say, sophistication and resources within the department um, and SEC have grown. Um, so to have the expectations around this. And, and again, I, I, I think 
you know, although DOJ and SEC have become more sophisticated, the, the experts in this area are still the chief compliance officers and the companies that, that operate um, in this space. But at the same time, what DOJ and SEC now expect, a lot of times it may very well be a quarterly meeting. Um, they're going to be much more active um, in terms of, of how they are reviewing, questioning, and, and coming back to the, the company to try to understand whether or not the company is, in fact, enhancing its compliance programs, uh, whether they're, they're being tested, whether they're working. Um, you know, the DOJ, for example, now has um, a, a unit within the department, um, within the fraud section, um, that's the, the Corporate Enforcement Compliance and Policy Unit. Um, they have dedicated compliance attorneys there um, whose job it is to help review uh, these reports, to have interactions with the company. They have um, a set of, I mean, there's standard questions, but they obviously, you know, tailor each to, to the, the specific company. But this is what they do. And, and they try to drill down and, and ask for examples and data and, and really try to look under the hood of the company's compliance program. So I'd now like to turn to some of the remarks we heard from the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco in her October speech. Uh, and several things I thought were very striking about it, and I'd love to get y'all's opinion. Uh, and uh, Dan, uh, if I could maybe start with you, and then maybe Matt, you can follow up on this same point. But we heard a, a fair amount about corporate culture, and I heard that tied into to many of the points she raised, uh, monitorships, total totality of criminal activity or, excuse me, uh, investigations, that sort of thing, but a lot about corporate culture. So, Dan, if I could maybe start with you on how do you think the department would look or try to assess culture? And then, Matt, from the in-house perspective, how would you suggest uh, a compliance officer, a CCO, or a company begin to assess their culture? Dan? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, the, the DAG specifically talked about uh, culture in her speech. I think she. I think it was something along the lines of, of corporate culture matters, um, and uh, you know, a, a corporate culture that that fails to hold individuals accountable um, or invest in compliance um, leads to bad results. And, and talking about holding companies accountable for that, um, it, you know, in terms of measuring culture, I mean, this is another area where you know DOJ and SEC have evolved over time. Um, you know, when I first arrived at, at DOJ and for the first few years, I, I think the the types of of evidence that a company would come in with and, and the types of things that would frankly satisfy um, the the government was an email message from the the CFO or the CEO or the chief compliance officer out out to the employees saying how important um, compliance is and and I think over time there was a shift both in the way that the DOJ and SEC described it, um, but also in the, the way that they measure it. And so the, the way that they describe it, I think, changed from tone at the top um, to to conduct at the top and middle um, and and really trying to, to emphasize the, the fact that it's not just about an email message or a speech or a video message, um, you know, that this is about uh, walking the walk. And then in terms of, of what they look for, again, this is the type of thing where there's a, a number of, of questions that they ask around this. Just a, a couple examples would be um, the the resourcing of, of the compliance function, um, whether discipline is, um, is, is uh, carried out evenly or equally among, for example, 
higher level uh, officers in the company that engage in the same misconduct as lower level employees, um, or is there disparate treatment? Um, whether the employees who are reporting misconduct feel comfortable reporting it up their business chain um, to their manager as opposed to doing it anonymously through a hotline. Um, those are just a couple examples. Now, again, and, and one thing just to stress on, on this point as well as, you know, when we were talking about reporting on compliance previously or, or DOJ's and SEC's compliance expectations, it really is important to, to educate uh, DOJ and SEC on why you are making the decisions you're making and doing the things that you're doing um, in a way that that may not meet their expectations. And so simply because DOJ or SEC have seen something at another company that may be better resourced, that may um, you know have a, a different way of doing something in, in a particular area that may work well for that company, DOJ and SEC may then say, oh, that seems like the type of thing that every company should do or, or every company in this industry or in this region. Um, and so that's, again, why it's important for the, the chief compliance officer, who really is the expert in this area, to, to, to have the role not just informing DOJ about um, the steps that they have taken, but also explaining why they haven't taken the steps that they haven't taken that DOJ may be asking about or, or, or questioning why they haven't done something. Um, and so that that also applies. There, there may be a very good reason, for example, why the compliance function is resourced or set up a certain way that DOJ may ask about or, or, or scrutinize, but there may be a very good reason for it. And, and explaining and walking DOJ and SEC through that um, can, can go a very long way. Matt? That's a pretty awesome answer that's hard to follow, but let me let me try and come up with some kind of other kind of gaps that I, I might suggest. You know, one, I always would I always start with the money. What are the kind of financial incentives? Not just for like, you know, think, you know, compliance officers should get paid more. Sure, we should all get paid more. It's very self-aggrandizing. But I'm more about looking at the incentives for the for the executives. You know, one of the first things I did when I took over the CCO role was incorporate, we had kind of extended vesting periods for compensation, incorporate ethics clawbacks within within vesting so that if we, dis- if we found that somebody had engaged in ethical misconduct three years later, we could still claw back equity grants, you know, from that period, which was super powerful. And I think it's one thing, as Dan said, it used to be an email but, you know, my question would be, is the money literally, you know, where their mouth is? I mean, are you actually incentivizing, you know, executives pocketbooks, uh, you know, to to do the right thing and doing it in kind of an intelligent way? You know, that would be one. I think you could look at structure and I think there's, there's different objective ways you can look at the empowerment and independence of a compliance function, specifically the consequence management function. And I think that goes to you know, other metrics, Dan, saying about, okay, are you punishing more senior people the same way, more junior people? And I think there's a lot you can do in terms of getting kind of ethical climate from different data sources. You know, Dan mentioned, you know, reporting lines. You know, you can, and, and there's a lot of little things you can do that kind of, the kind of science is beginning to point out that if you ask someone, at the end of a helpline report, whether they'd like to be anonymous rather than the beginning, you actually, in one study I saw, doubled the likelihood that they would give their name and information. And that's huge because in my experience, when I looked at the data across ABMBEV, our ability to substantiate a case was roughly double 
if the person gave their information and contact details, because then you can go back and ask them the questions and investigate. So one small kind of data nudge change can have huge profound consequences and make the whole kind of operation work that much better. And I think, well, it's difficult to come up with metrics to say thoughtfulness of a compliance program. That's certainly one that you can see effectiveness. And are you being effective in terms of consequence management, you know, in terms of outputs? And then you can look at other kind of indicators as well. Over the last year, we did a lot kind of borrowing from marketing teams, looking at net promoter score across compliance activities and looking for kind of ethics net promoters in reaction to training. And were people actually positively supporting ethical compliance endeavors, endeavors or were people, you know, just kind of detracting or indifferent to it and kind of doing it because they had to. And you can get very interesting insights into how effective your old training um, mechanism is as part of compliance. And the last is a bit of mission, Tom. I mean, you, you keep mentioning compliance, compliance. I think the evolution of the compliance officer into either an ethics or integrity officer is something that is beneficial to the space. And as you kind of look at cultural, you know, more broadly, you know, compliance by definition is following a set of rules that you don't want to follow, where ethics is about kind of empowering people to behave in a better, more integral way. And I think as that role shifts, you kind of take on a bigger cultural responsibility and you take on a broader mission and you kind of move away from kind of documenting a process and moving more towards influencing behavior. And I think that's going to be kind of core to how you evaluate kind of an ethics program as opposed to a compliance program, because they're in many ways, two different things. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more from Dan Kahn and Matt Galvin. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I'd like to now ask you guys about uh, the part of the Monaco speech that talked about all regulatory uh, investigations that a company may have enga been engaged in or regulatory violations communicated to the Department of Justice. And I saw that as a part of the, this broader corporate culture discussion. Um, it al also has had quite a bit of pushback from the White Collar Defense Bar uh, and others. But I wanted to ask uh, your opinions uh, Dan, did, uh, do you see this as really uh, a part of this corporate culture discussion, or do you see it as maybe something else? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question, and, uh, you know, certainly I, I think you could view it in, in, through that lens of, of corporate culture. I think, I think what, um, what I and, and others in the defense bar, and I, I imagine a number of companies um, certainly ones that I've spoken to are, are concerned about is um, the, the notion that you, you can be a, a multinational company with tens of thousands or, or hundreds of thousands of employees 
and one employee engages in misconduct in some far-flung subsidiary um, that uh, is is imputed to the company um, involving you know one type of misconduct, the company fully remediates, cleans it up, um, terminates the employee, uh, puts in place stronger controls, and then ten years later. Uh, a different employee in a different subsidiary engages in completely different misconduct that implicates different controls, that really doesn't speak to the culture of, of the company. If anything, I, I think it shows that the, the company's culture um, is, is strong, that they remediated after the first misconduct, that the new misconduct also involved a lower-level employee um, implicating different controls. Um, and, and so to, to hold that against the company um, I, I think is is certainly concerning and in, in some ways, um, you know, doesn't align with uh, with a, an attempt to, to try to incentivize good compliance and, and reward a good corporate culture. Um, and so what what has yet to, to be seen um, is is what the what what the details around that review are going to look like and what the consequences are going to be. And so is the government going to factor in um, whether the the conduct was similar, whether they implicated the same controls, whether it involved the same employees, how far apart it was, um, how high level it went. And I think that um, those are the types of things that you hear some folks after the DAG speech putting a little bit more color around. And, you know, certainly we heard um, the, the AAG over the criminal division, Kenneth Polite, um, who himself was a chief compliance officer, and, and he oversees, you know, all of the FCPA cases and um, sees a lot, oversees a lot of the, the BSA cases, um, financial fraud cases. And so the fact that he is out there talking about those distinguishing factors, I think, is, is important and, and very helpful. And Dan, if I could follow up uh, with you on another uh, point or topic from the Monaco speech, which is uh, monitorships. Uh, I heard or read the speech, rather, and uh, it seemed to me that it rejected or at least uh, removed the requirements set forth in the Benchkowski memo. I think others have a little bit different view on that. Where do you think uh, the Benchkowski memo is now around monitors, and how do you see the DOJ assessing monitor use going forward? Yeah, it, it, so it's funny. The, the DAG was actually very careful in the way that she phrased it. Um, you know, she said that to the extent that monitors were disfavored in the last administration, um, that that she was going to be rescinding that guidance. Uh, but she didn't say that they were, in fact, disfavored, and she didn't um, point to a specific policy or, 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 or line item, um, where, you know, that, that she was changing. And, and at least as far as I know, to date, the Benchkowski memo hasn't been changed. Um, and so I, I think there was a, at least the perception that, um, that there were less monitors in the last administration than the prior one. Um, I don't know that that's entirely true. I think that there was one year, um, in 2016 where there was a, a pretty big spike in the number of FCPA monitorships, for example. But if you look before that and you look after that, um, the, the Obama administration actually looks pretty similar to, to the last four years um, in terms of, of the number of monitors. And I think I think there has been a recognition that monitors, although they, they serve a very important function, 
um, in, in certain cases and appropriate cases, they can also be extremely disruptive to the business. They can be extremely costly. There's a, a, a significant risk or possibility of, of mission creep. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that uh, administrations, you know, the last administration, but all the, also the Obama administration and the Bush administration have, have entered into them, um, you know, deliberately and, and you know, ensuring that, that they are, are necessary in, in, most, in most cases. Um, and so it, it will, I think we just don't know yet, again, as, as with prior misconduct and what impact that will have. You know, the, the DAG has announced this corporate crime advisory group. I imagine one of the, the things um, that they will be addressing is, is this exact issue when monitors should uh, be, be imposed. Um, but again, it, it's, it, it has long been the practice of the department that monitorships are not punitive. Um, they're rehabilitative. And, and so it, the, the primary driving factor for when the department or the SEC put in place a monitor is um, based on what the compliance program looks like at the time of the resolution. And that's yet another reason why it's really important, as, as Matt was saying earlier, that you start remediating very early on, as early as you can, um, and, and making um, compliance enhancements throughout the investigation so that when you get to that point, um, you're not just talking about steps that you plan on making or that you're in the process of making. You can talk about compliance enhancements that were made, that were tested, and that are proven effective. Because even if the compliance program has been implemented by the time of the resolution, if it's not tested at that point, the DOJ may very well put in place um, even a hybrid monitor to, to test the compliance program. Matt, if I could uh, turn to you on a little bit different focus question. As a CCO or compliance professional, how would you use the information from a major Department of Justice announcement, such as the Lisa Monaco speech in October, uh, internally? Would you uh, give that uh, information to the board in a presentation? Would you sit down with senior management? Would you ask outside counsel to uh, perhaps uh, draft a memo on the significance? How do you use that information internally? No, it's a a great question, Tom. And it actually reminded me a few months ago, I was talking to the CCO of a major logistics company who pointed out that a lot of his audit committee reports were increasingly almost, you know, 40, 50% about external developments, what was happening outside the company. And I really took that on because it occurred to me that, you know, my history of reporting to the board, very little had been, you know, it was all about what either the company was doing. And, you know, I love to talk about myself, what I was doing or what my team was doing. And I realized, you know, I wasn't giving them enough view of what was happening outside. And, you know, that realization kind of happily fell around, you know, around the same time that that memo landed. And we pivoted and now our kind of board updates and our audit committee kind of updates, my senior management updates became about 20% what was happening outside. What were the external factors? What's happening in industry? What's happening, you know, between kind of Brazilian enforcement or Guatemala or China or Nigeria and all these different kind of major markets for us? What was happening enforcement-wise in addition to the U.S. and how that was driving? Um, you know, that's certainly critical in, in corruption in the sense that there's kind of cycles and rising in low tides as the moon goes around the earth in terms of corruption enforcement, but even more so in areas of digital ethics and 
you know, data privacy, where that kind of, you know, that, that is a very big moving target. And certainly with, you know, more focus on ESG and more focus in the kind of intersection of the role between the CCO and different ESG reporting and the opportunity that creates, I think it's super important to educate your board on kind of, you know, what is justice looking at in terms of criminal enforcement? What's happening with ESG in terms of stakeholder and, you know, where's the money moving with ESG and how is that going to influence behavior? And then digital ethics and technology and how is technology changing the function? I think it's, it's incumbent upon every CCO to not only be on top of those three issues, but talking to their board about it regularly, because that also, I think, is very enhancing and productive for the compliance function generally. So, gentlemen, uh, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I have to thank both of you, too. This has been a great uh, recording, and I wanted to end by asking if uh, any of our listeners wanted more information on any of the topics that we've talked about today, or perhaps yourselves, what would be the best way for them to uh, to find out more? And Dan, if I could start with you. Sure. You, you mean like just contact info? Yeah, sure. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, you, you can email me anytime at, at daniel.com, K-A-H-N, uh, at davispolk.com. Uh, and, you know, I have a, a firm bio page that you can click on as well on my emails there. And for me, like any creature of the social media age, I think my LinkedIn profile has had a better, more robust career than I have. And so it's best to just reach out to me on LinkedIn and, uh, and I'll get back to you that way. Guys, this has been great. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and perseverance as much as anything to, to make this podcast happen. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Dan. It's been great. Thanks so much. This is Tom Fox again. That concludes part two of this special two-part podcast series with Dan Kahn and Matt Galvin. If you didn't have the chance to check out part one, I would urge you to go back and listen to it as they walk us through several key decisions around working with and dealing with the DOJ during an FCPA investigation. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.